Chapter 4, Part 2 of Religion and Health. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. Religion and Health by James Joseph Walsh. Chapter 4, Charity, Part 2. To harbor the harborless as a work of mercy, when stated in this form, seemed to me, as a child, when I learned it in the catechism, some wonderful exhibition of charity for shipwrecked mariners. I could not help but think that it must be harborless sailors who needed to be harbored. Stories of even two or three generations ago here in America show how seriously this Christian duty of the old-fashioned words was taken. There are still many country places, in the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee particularly, where a family will take in a stranger for the night if he happens to be in their neighborhood. They will give him his supper and breakfast too, or they would a few years ago, and likely would be insulted if he offered to pay for them. They have performed a simple duty of hospitality, which comes down to them by tradition from the older time. A man who was still alive told me that when he was young, and two or three of his brothers slept in the bed with him, occasionally they would find, when they awoke in the morning, that father had taken in a stranger during the night, and since there was no other place for him than the children's big bed on the floor, the children had been crowded over, and room had been made for him with them. This happened not in the South, but in Pennsylvania. I know that my old grandmother, long ago, living in a one-roomed house with an attic, used to take in the greenhorns from Ireland in this manner, and give the men shelter and food until they could get a job, and give the girls who came a lodging and a chance to learn something about plain American cooking and the care of a house until they would be ready to take a place in service. Almost needless to say, this exercise of hospitality proved a very interesting diversion for people whose lives were rather monotonous. I feel sure that it must have meant much for the relief of that dissatisfaction with life because it lacks variety, which is so often the first symptom of a neurosis. The stranger brought news from a distance, the greenhorns brought news from Ireland, and many things were talked over while they ate their meals or sat around the fire in an evening, and it proved real entertainment. This was not the motive for which the charity was offered, for that was, as a rule, as Christian as it could be but it represented that reward which is so often, it cannot be but divinely, attached to a good deed, and which brings so much satisfaction with it. Our entertainment of guests, as a rule, is very different. Above all, it entails no personal effort. Even when people are invited to dinner nowadays, hostesses seem to consider it necessary to ask somebody to entertain them, for if they should be permitted to entertain themselves, or be asked to make an effort to make their own conversation entertaining, they would probably be bored almost to death. Is it any wonder that our fulfillment of so-called social duties often proves nerve-wracking, and a season of it must be followed by a rest cure, while old-fashioned hospitality did good to the doer and the recipient? Ours is of the selfish striving of social aspirations. Theirs was an exercise of real charity, an external expression of the dearness of fellow mortals." Above all, the presence in a household of an occasional guest, who is not a relative, is good for the family. It relieves the monotony, often relaxes domestic tension, gives a new zest to living, and cements personal friendships. To feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, and to clothe the naked were, in the Christian ritual of corporal works of mercy, not obligations to be accomplished by writing one's name on a piece of bank paper 
and passing it over to a social service society of some kind nor by handing a few bills to some almoner who distributes condescendingly your dole to the poor someone has very well said that the only action calling for any reward in such activities is the effort required to write one's signature or reach into the pocket for money the rest of the transaction is only a matter of debit and credit on a bank balance and makes practically no difference in most cases to the individual who gives it the most compelling motive for charity in our time is that you might as well give up fifteen per cent of your income for if you do not the government will take it anyhow so have the satisfaction of getting ahead of uncle sam charity in the older time was thought to be actual personal work for others it is this personal service which carries its reward with it often by provision of needed physical exercise always by happy occupation of mind affording the opportunity for satisfaction of heart impulses with the many other personal reactions which enter into true charity religious teaching furnishes an abundance of examples of even kings and queens and the higher nobility and of wealthy merchants and their wives who devoted themselves to personal service in the performance of these works of mercy st louis of france st ferdinand of castile st catherine of siena though she was only a dyer's daughter in this group of notables st elizabeth of hungary st margaret of scotland and the good queen maud her daughter dick whittington of the cat lord mayor of london and many others all these were held up as symbols of what people ought to do in the matter of personal service there is often the feeling at the present time that when people give to charity it is not infrequently because they have heard some recent harrowing reports of the condition of the poor or have been brought into contact with some particularly pitiable case and that the memory of these is likely to recur to them and intrude on their social satisfactions unless they can do something to make them feel that they have at least tried to fulfil their duty in the way of affording relief a merchant on the way home from business who meets a beggar on the streets knows that as a rule if he gives money it will do harm rather than good but he knows too that when he is comfortably seated after dinner before the fire with his coffee and his cigar before him if the thought of the beggar that he refused comes to him it will make him uncomfortable to give with the idea of avoiding such discomforts is of course not charity but refined selfishness and it's no wonder that it lacks the surpassing sense of satisfaction which helps so much in making life more full of the feeling of usefulness this is not the charity that does as much good for the doer as for the receiver of it in our time settlement work neighborhood houses and the like have represented this personal service which religion in the older time listed under the various titles of the corporal works of mercy many physicians have learned that young women particularly who had not very much to do indeed perhaps no definite duties and yet had an abundance of vital energy which had to be expended in some way found very interesting and satisfying occupation of mind in connection with settlement work above all they secured an opportunity for the exercise of the heart impulses so natural to women and which must almost as necessarily be expended on something as the physical energies which they develop every day must be employed in some sort of labor if they are not to be short-circuited and make them miserable it is perfectly possible and even easy to pervert heart impulses which might be the source of good for self and others into sexuality of various kinds whether that be exhibited in philanderings with the male dancers employed by the hotels to make tes interesting for feminine youth and also idle middle age or in love affairs with the family chauffeur they will find an issue some way almost inevitably 
It may be that writing notes to the latest matinee idol, or even letting one's feelings be properly harrowed up at performances of sex problem plays, may prove sufficient for a time. But something more will be demanded before long, and there must be something real to satisfy natural cravings. There is probably no better safeguard against the tendency of the young heart to overflow on unworthy objects than to give it the opportunity to exercise itself on unselfish aims, which lead up to the fine satisfactions to be derived from helpfulness for others. Settlement work and cognate personal activities have so organized the opportunity for this that young women do not have to travel in perilous neighborhoods, except under such circumstances as reasonably assure their safety from insult or aggression of any kind. The charity that prompts occupation with such activities often leads to a development of character, while at the same time affording such exercise of body and mind as greatly promotes that eminently desirable end the possession of a healthy mind and healthy body. There is much discussion at the present time over sex dangers for young people, but it must not be forgotten that these are mainly due to the sexual incitements which we are fostering in the dance hall and in the theatre and the cabaret supper room, while the best possible corrective for sexual erethism is to be found in contact with some of the misery of the world. The remedy is at hand, but unfortunately it is not made use of as a rule, and we wonder why evils increase as selfishness becomes more rampant. John Ruskin summed up the situation with regard to the young women of our time in his address on The Mystery of Life and Its Arts, Sesame and Lilies, in words that deserve to be in the notebook of everyone who hopes to be able to help the young over some of the difficult parts of their path through life in our times. Quote, you may see continually girls who have never been taught to do a single useful thing thoroughly, who cannot sew, who cannot cook, who cannot cast an account, nor prepare a medicine, whose whole life has been passed either in play or in pride. You will find girls like these, when they are earnest-hearted, cast all their innate passion of religious spirit, which was meant by God to support them through the irksomeness of daily toil, into grievous and vain meditation over the meaning of the great book, of which no syllable was ever yet to be understood but through a deed. All the instinctive wisdom and mercy of their womanhood made vain, and the glory of their pure consciences warped into fruitless agony concerning questions which the laws of common serviceable life would have either solved for them in an instant or kept out of their way such a girl give such a girl any true work that will make her active in the dawn and weary at night with the consciousness that her fellow-creatures have indeed been the better for her day and the powerless sorrow of her enthusiasm will transform itself into a majesty of radiant and beneficent peace the friendly visiting of the poor is an old-fashioned christian practice which had lapsed unfortunately until it was restored to some extent at least by the great work of frederick ozenam of paris the conferences of st vincent de paul organized by him in paris while he was professor of the university there about one hundred years ago had for their principal object the visitation of the poor not so much for the purpose of giving them alms as of helping them with advice making them feel that there are people interested in them and giving them a new sense of human dignity though also providing them with such necessaries as they might be in immediate want of and above all securing them occupations whenever they were needed I have known many men who have developed a new and vigorous sense of life as a consequence of learning that they could be so useful to others as the Ozenam organization permitted them to be. For a great many men, some such escape from the sordid routine of daily business life is needed, 
this is particularly true when they have passed a little beyond middle age which for me is not beyond fifty as so many people seem to think but thirty-five the period indicated by dante in the first line of his divine comedy as marking the midpoint of existence after forty particularly most men who take life seriously and do not merely try to make money and kill the intervening time that hangs heavily on their hands in any way that they can as a rule lose their interest in reading novels and do not care for the trivial plays of our time they need diversion they are not likely to get it at the opera unless they are very musically inclined card-playing may prove an excellent diversion and one that personally i think ever so much better than the reading of trivial novels but there are a great many men to whom it has no appeal if they stay at home they are likely to fall asleep in their chairs over the evening paper or a current magazine and nothing in the world makes one feel so uncomfortable or so spoils an evening as to go to sleep in that way if they are particularly occupied with business affairs these may intrude themselves on their evening hours but they very soon learn the lesson that it is dangerous to take business home with them they need some serious occupation of mind quite different from what occupies them during the day professional men find something of this in the meetings of professional societies but they too need a heart interest a sympathy interest for their fellow-man quite as well as the women many of them find it with their children as these grow up around them and family life will very much help but as the children grow older and have their own interests in the evenings father is more and more likely to be left by himself and then he needs something that will occupy him in some broad human way a good hobby of any kind would be a saving grace but hobbies to be effective should be cultivated from early in life one cannot be created easily at need after forty for such men friendly visiting of the poor for it is only in the evenings that the man of the house can be seen since he is always at work during the day will often prove a most valuable resource in a number of instances i have suggested to men who were beginning to get on their own nerves that they interest themselves in this way and have been rather well satisfied with the results when they took the advice seriously in a few cases i have seen really wonderful results when it seemed almost inevitable that men were drifting into dangerous neurotic conditions because they were living lives too narrow in their interests and above all so self-centered that they were dwelling on slight discomforts and exaggerating them into symptoms of disease contact with the suffering that one sees among the city poor is a wonderful remedy for neurotic tendencies to make too much of one's own feelings for the poor almost as a rule face the real ills of life with a simplicity and a courage that inevitably causes anyone who is brought close to them to admire them and to feel that his own trials are trifles compared to what these people undergo with very little whimpering there is another phase of charity probably unintentional in its activity and almost unconscious that is extremely interesting and has a very definite place in the discussion of health and religion some men who have made a success in life far beyond their neighbors have preferred to continue dwelling in their old home rather than move into the quarter of the city to which their changed circumstances would have permitted them to go such families represent the very best possible kind of settlements in the poorer quarters of the city and help more than anything else to keep a neighborhood from running down in such a way as to make life harder for the poor who dwell there the old walled cities are often said to have been almost intolerably unhealthy because of the inevitable crowding of the population which they compelled and undoubtedly they were a fruitful source of disease and ills of many kinds for the population 
and yet it is doubtful whether any old-time city was ever so unsanitary as the slums of our modern crowded cities were a generation ago or are even in many places at the present time there was one feature of the old cities whose obliteration one cannot help but regret the better-to-do families often lived on the front part of the city lot while the less well-to-do often indeed the men who worked for the proprietor of the house in front lived on the back of it this was true particularly in many foreign cities and continued until a few generations ago this arrangement kept the conditions of living so far as regards the middle class of the poor from being so markedly indifferent as they are at the present time those who lived in the rear knew all the happenings the births and the deaths among their employers while the family in the front took an interest in the events the births and deaths and illnesses in the families in the rear this proved to be valuable for social reasons and it kept conditions of health among the poor from degenerating in anything like the way that has happened in modern times the mutual personal interests did a great deal more to make life more satisfactory and more full of good feeling than the relationships of classes to each other do in our time and as this reacted to make a state of mind much more conducive to health than would otherwise have been the case such associations would seem to be almost impossible in modern days and yet the late mr thomas mulry president of the immigrant savings bank at a time when i believe it was the largest savings bank in the world continued to live down among the poorer folk to whom so much of his life was devoted for years after families of his standing in the financial world had long moved out our present governor of new york has declared his intention of continuing his residence among his friends in the old seventh ward and undoubtedly his presence there will mean much not only for the health of those around him but also for the health of his family because of the simple life which is so likely to be perpetuated in these surroundings for such social work as this religious motives are probably the most efficient impulses nothing is quite so direct a denial of the brotherhood of man that religion teaches as the tendency for people to move away from their old neighbors into the better quarters of the cities just as soon as they are in any way able such reasoning may seem idealistic and impractical but then religion is the typically ideal and impractical thing in life which teaches that self-advantage is not so important as advantage for all those around one and that man's principal duty in life is to love his neighbor as himself how often has it happened that the building of a new house in a new neighborhood proves the last straw which serves to make an end of the good health and heartiness of life which the head of the family had enjoyed up to this time the new habits that are necessitated the interference with the active life which had been customary up to this time and above all the more luxurious living very often with less exercise which come under the new conditions bring about deterioration of health the move is made for the sake of the young people but it takes the old folks out of the precious simple habits of a lifetime which meant so much for the preservation of health so that it is no wonder that many a physician has a patient whose breakdown in health followed not long after the move to a new and handsome house that carried people away from their old associations and their old neighbors and left them without those heart resources which are so important for the preservation of a healthy mind in a healthy body it is men not things that count in life though that lesson is hard for many to learn for a while toward the end of the nineteenth century owing to misunderstanding of the significance of the struggle for existence there came to be the feeling that sympathy and helpfulness for others was somehow contrary to modern scientific principles and that it represented at best 
a sentimentality that could scarcely hope to be effective and was indeed sure to fail in the long run because it was in opposition though to but a very slight degree to nature's inevitable elimination of the weak further investigations in biology however have revealed the fact that while the struggle for existence is an important factor in whatever evolution takes place mutual aid is another factor of scarcely less importance in general and of supreme significance within the species while one species preys on another the members of the same species usually possess certain deep-seated instincts of helpfulness only at times when there is a famine or when a mother is seeking food for her young do members of the same species seriously interfere with each other's activities or injure each other while a great many of them have mutually helpful instincts that are extremely precious for personal as well as generic developments the smaller living things as the insects dwell together in communities and perform their duties constantly with the community benefit rather than personal satisfaction in view it might be said perhaps that these small creatures would have to be gifted in some such way to secure their preservation in the struggle for existence and their defence against their enemies the larger animals however have the same helpful instincts wild horses run in droves and when attacked by a pack of wolves the wolves hunting in packs because they can thus secure their prey better the horses gather in a circle with their heads facing in and the young foals and the mares in the centre and only a battery of heels is presented to the attackers even such large animals as elephants travel in herds with the huge bull elephants on the outskirts of the herd ready to hurl back any of the big cats the lions or tigers who might spring to get one of those toothsome morsels a baby elephant travelling with his mother near the centre of the herd smaller animals live in villages and groups of various kinds and those of the same species are often helpful to each other in many ways manifestly the great law of charity in a certain basic way at least pervades all nature nature may be red in tooth and claw but brother animals very often have by instinct a fellow-feeling that is a factor in the preservation of the race the idea that the discovery of the struggle for existence and the preservation of favored races in that way has in any fashion neutralized the law of charity is entirely a mistake men in their selfishness have occasionally asserted this and above all those who felt uncomfortable because their own selfish successes were as they could plainly see causing a great deal of discomfort and sometimes the ruin of others it was once suggested that when the nurseryman wants to grow especially beautiful american beauty roses he is careful to eliminate all but a few buds so that these may have an opportunity to grow to the greatest possible perfection and that this same policy pursued in human affairs led to the production of such great institutions as the standard oil company this was a particularly odorous comparison it was made some twenty years ago almost needless to say everyone sees the absurdity of it now though at the time there were not a few who thought that the biological principle of the struggle for existence justified even the hurting of rivals in order to secure success the great war completed the elimination of such ideas it was undertaken with the thought that any nation or people who could dominate the world was bound to do so because that was manifest destiny for the benefit of the race just as it took our civil war to end the defense of slavery in the united states 
so it has taken the great war to end such pretensions and to bring out the fact that mutual aid and above all charity charity undertaken out of real love for others through a divine motive must be the rule for men while its symbol mutual aid among the members of the various species constitutes an important element for the preservation of the various races and the working out of the great laws that underlie all nature we in our generation were the inheritors of a philosophy of life which for a time in what has now come to be called the silly seventies people thought could do away entirely with the necessity for a creator and with the idea of a providence because it seemed to them as though the suffering in the world around them contravened their notion of an all-wise power capable of relieving suffering and yet not doing so the doctrine of the survival of the fittest seemed to many a demonstration that victory was to the strongest or the swiftest and that the rest must simply go off to the wall or lag behind in the race of life the doctrine of the superman seemed to be the very latest discovery of science but now after having fought a great war to overthrow that doctrine the world is much readier to go back and take up the thread of the philosophy of the race before the theory of the struggle for existence came to figure so largely in it we have come to realize that everywhere in nature there is a great law of mutual aid within its species impressed upon all living things and this is even more applicable to the human species than to those of the lower orders End of chapter 4 Read by Olivia